Turn with me to Joshua 24 as we finish up the book of Joshua this morning. Joshua chapter 24. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, that you're our creator, that you are truth, that you've spoken your word into existence and it stands as truth. Thank you for the gift of eternal life that you have prepared a place for us, for the comfort of your spirit. And we're a grateful people this morning. And we come to you needing your touch, needing for you to speak to us through your word. So would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? Would you please send your spirit to lead us and guide us in your truth? In Jesus' name, amen. The theme of the book of Joshua is enter in, not just because I chose that title, but it is the challenge in the book of Joshua to enter into all that God has for us. We see the second generation saying we're going to walk by faith and enter into what God has promised to give us. Their parents died in their wilderness because of their unbelief, and it provokes the question, the challenge for us, are we going to enter into all that God has for us? This is the last words of Joshua part two. Last week was part one in chapter 23 where Joshua spoke specifically to the leaders. And now in chapter 24, he's going to speak to the whole nation of Israel. And there is a wonderful challenge presented for us in Joshua 24. So verse one, then Joshua gathered all of the tribes of Israel together to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel for their heads for their judges and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Isn't that a great reality, a wonderful picture? As they're gathered together, they're not just there to hear Joshua speak, though it was a great privilege. He's 110 years old. These are his last words, but they're really there to present themselves before God. And that's hopefully the case for us as we gather together and we worship together is that we're presenting ourselves to the Lord. As we study God's word, that we're presenting ourselves to the Lord. Do you ever get distracted in worship? You know, you know you're not supposed to be distracted and you start, for whatever reason, I'm having a hard time connecting this morning. Then you start looking around and I know I'm not really supposed to be looking around, but you're looking around and kind of looking over your shoulder and looking in front of you and I know for some of you, that's why you sit in the front, because you're like, if I sit in the back, I'm going to be too too distracted. But as you're looking around, all of a sudden, you see somebody that's just fully in the presence of God. And then what does it do to you? It provokes you, doesn't it, in a good way. It stirs us in a good way, and it kind of goes, oh yeah, that's what I need to be about. I need to be presenting myself to the Lord. We can present ourselves and we should be presenting ourselves to the Lord individually, privately, but there's something special about coming together and being able to do it corporately. From verse 2, going down through verse 12, if you're taking notes this morning, first thing that Joshua does is remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. He reminds Israel of God's faithfulness in their life. 18 times the word I is used and Joshua is speaking for God and God is saying, these are the things that I have done for you. So verse two, and Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor dwelt on the other side of the river in old times and they served other gods. 
So when Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, Father Abraham, who began the nation of Israel, his descendants becoming God's chosen people, he was serving idols. And that's what God was calling him out of when he left Ur of the Chaldees. And this really is a message from Joshua of making sure that we don't fall into idolatry. In verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all of the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. When God called Abraham, he didn't tell him specifically where he was going. The knowing was in the going for Abraham. And isn't that the case so many times in our walk with God? God doesn't always give us the final destination. He just says, I want you to go. How difficult that must have been for Abraham and Sarah. Hey, where are we going, honey? Oh, we're just moving. We're just going to get in the U-Haul. We're just going to drive it until God shows us this is where we're supposed to be. All right. I'm trusting you, Abraham. I'm trusting that you're hearing from the Lord. But we're able to look back and see God's glory and how he did lead Abraham as he went through. Also, God's faithfulness to Abraham is that he gave him Isaac. And this is really in spite of Abraham, if you're familiar with his story. Because Abraham lied twice about Sarah, said that Sarah was his sister when indeed she was his wife. But God spared Sarah's life. Also, what did Abraham do? Abraham and Sarah weren't having kids. And so Sarah says, why don't you have a relationship with my handmaid and Hagar? And Abraham says, okay, sounds good to me. And he does, has relationship there with Hagar and Ishmael was born. But God was faithful through all of that, even with Abraham's failure to give Isaac to Abraham in his old age, after it was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have kids. And God's bringing up these things to remind Israel of all that he's done for him. He's displaying God's glory. In verse 4, to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, To Esau, I gave the mountains of Sirah to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Isaac as well was not able to have children, and he sought the Lord, and the Lord granted him children and gave him twins, Jacob and Esau. And Esau's descendants became the Edomites, and God gave them land, but then Jacob's descendants become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob goes down to Egypt with his kids. With his sons, his 12 sons, his grandchildren. Why? How did they end up in Egypt? Well, a little story about a guy named Joseph, right? Through much evil that was committed by the brothers, the brothers first want to kill Joseph and then they decide to sell him as a slave. But God's hand was even in the wickedness of the brothers. God was going to use it for his good and for his glory. A famine happens. Joseph is used to save Egypt, but also other lands. And guess who has to come for food? The brothers. And ultimately, Egypt becomes a place of refuge for Jacob and Joseph's brothers. They went into Egypt as a small family. Well, from our perspective, a very large family. But they came in as a family, and they left Egypt as a nation. We go into verse 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. We're really hitting this at a quick pace. When God called Moses, how did he call him? Well, first, he called Moses out of failure because Moses committed murder in Egypt, and he had to flee to the wilderness. Forty years in the wilderness, God speaks through a burning bush and calls Moses and Aaron back 
to speak to Pharaoh to let God's people go. The plagues that were poured out upon Pharaoh, ending with the death of the oldest child, and finally they're delivered out of Egypt. They're delivered out of bondage. In verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. So as they came out of Egypt, what happened? Pharaoh changes his mind. He pursues Israel, Red Sea's in front of them, Pharaoh and his armies behind them, God parts the Red Sea, they go across on dry land, Pharaoh says, I'm going to come in after them, you know the story, God crushed Pharaoh's army under the Red Sea, their taskmaster is dead and buried in the Red Sea, true freedom has come upon them. Now notice in your Bibles, verse 7, the next thing we're going to read, then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. Whose choice was it to dwell in the wilderness a long time? It was theirs, not God's. This is their parents that died in unbelief. A 40-year trek in the wilderness when it could have taken two to three weeks. Now that's depressing, isn't it? They were God's children, but they were unwilling to walk in faith. In verse 8, And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. These are victories that came through Moses. In verse 9, Then Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel, and sent and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand." The story of Balaam, to me, is one of the most colorful and creative in Scripture. Because Balaam was hired by Balak to go and curse Israel. But God opposed Balaam and puts the angel of the Lord in front of Balaam. Balaam's riding his donkey. The donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't. So the donkey stops. What does Balaam start to do? He just starts to wail and beat on his donkey. God allows the donkey to speak. The donkey basically says, haven't I been a good donkey all these years? Like, why are you beating me like this? And then we're left with asking the question, who's the real donkey here? It's Balaam, right? God showed his glory and his power in allowing this donkey to be able to speak. That would just be a scary thing. And what if you went home and if you own a dog and your dog's like, why are you being so mean to me today? Like, what's really going on in your life? My dog may as well be a donkey. She's about 170 pounds. She's a, she's a Newfoundland. It would freak me out if she started having a conversation with me. So God had Balaam's attention, and God took what was meant to be a curse, and he turned it into a blessing for the nation of Israel. And God's done that time and time again for the nation of Israel. So many people coming against Israel and cursing Israel, and God turns it into a blessing. In verse 11, Then you went out over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and all the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perzites, the the Canites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Don't forget the Outasites and the Mosquito Bites. But I delivered them into your hand. God says these victories that have just happened, that we've just studied in Joshua over the last several months, I was the one who did this. And God emphasizes that in the next verse. Verse 12, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. 
also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. We don't have a lot of information on this. What's the deal with the hornet? Was it this big wasp that went out before them and did a number on the enemy? We just don't know. But God is very clear here. The principle, the truth, is God goes before us and what he calls us into. And that's a great comfort. God's putting on your heart to take a step of faith. You can trust that he's out before you. He's preparing the way. As we get into verse 13 and we get into verse 14, it's the real challenge of this scripture. I've given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell on them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves and you did not plant. What a blessing for them. They come into the promised land that God gave to them. We're talking vineyards that have been there for hundreds of years. Houses that are all ready to move into with the furniture and everything else because God allowed them to have victory. And you think of some of the the new neighborhoods that are developed, especially on the eastern part of our city, and what do you notice? There's no trees, right? And it takes a long time for those trees to start to grow up. Now when you go into parts of Briargate, they actually have trees. You know, I remember driving in that section of Briargate and going, uh, kind of feels a lot like Kansas. I don't know why everybody's moving up to, to Briargate. You out in Falcon, you're enduring in faith that there will be trees, right? 10 or 15 years, 20 years, there, there's going to be trees. And how nice it was for these guys to not go through this process of planting the vineyards and planting the crops and planting the trees. They just got to walk in and the Lord gave it to them. So verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. And you may want to put a box around or circle or underline that word therefore. Because you've probably heard a lot of sermons on verse 14 and verse 15. They're good sermons, they're good teachings, they're biblical, but they've lost sight of that this challenge is based on a response to God's goodness. That's what the word therefore is therefore. It is based on what God has done for Israel. Now God calls them to this place of saying, I've been so good to you, now fear me and serve me in sincerity. And the same is true for us. I think when we understand the goodness, the love, the grace of God that's already been given to us, we respond to that by wanting to fear God and wanting to serve the Lord. This isn't a message of saying, earn, work hard, commit to the Lord, and then maybe you'll have his favor. We've already received the favor of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. And in fact, please catch this, Egypt, the Red Sea, and the Jordan River all point to Jesus Christ. Because Egypt was bondage. Egypt is a picture of our life before Christ. We were in bondage. We had a cruel taskmaster like the Pharaoh, and it was our sin. We are slaves to sin. How are they delivered out of Egypt? By the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb was put upon the door of the homes. All the homes that did that, death passed over. That's why it's called the Passover. It pointed to the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ, and his blood that was shed for us. And when we apply it by faith to the door of our heart, judgment passes over us. We're delivered out of bondage. When we think about God's goodness in our lives, When we stop and think of not only is what God done for Israel, but what has he done for me? We look at the cross and we understand that we're no longer slaves to sin. Amen? Isn't that good news this morning? Before you knew Christ as your savior, you had no other choice. You were going to be a slave to sin. But now God has set us free 
The power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin has been paid for. But the Red Sea points to baptism because that's where the taskmaster was buried. And baptism, it's a picture of what's already happened in our lives with Christ, that we're buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. So Red Sea points to our baptism in Christ Jesus. The sinful nature, the old man is buried just like Pharaoh was buried in the Red Sea. The Jordan River points to now how Jesus Christ has brought us into all of the promises of God. We've talked about how Joshua points to Jesus Christ. And it's not the law, it's not Moses that brings us into God's promises. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. And especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about in John 14 through 17 how beneficial it was for him to go to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could come to the disciples. And so we've crossed over the Jordan River. Christ has brought us into the promises of God, has brought us into the life of the Spirit. So out of all of God's goodness and kindness and mercy, I want you to pause and think about the things that God has done in your life. I know it's hard to put it all together in just a few moments, but where were you 10 years ago? Where were you 20 years ago? And what has the Lord done? Bringing you to Christ, showing you things, providing for you, comforting you, walking with you in difficult times. As we meditate upon his goodness, then we're encouraged and challenged of our reasonable service to fear God. What is it to fear God? To fear God is to respect God, to be in awe of God, to not want to do anything to hurt or to break his heart. There's an aspect of fear of God that comes from his judgment, his majesty, his glory, and his holiness, that he can rock our world if he needs to. But also the fear of God is developed in that he is so good, and he is so kind, and he is so gracious, I don't want to do anything to hurt his heart. Have you ever been given a gift that's so overwhelming that the person that gave it to you, you feel, you know, I don't want to do anything to hurt them because I've been overwhelmed by this acceptance and this love that they've extended to me. Fear the Lord is what Joshua's calling them to and also to serve God, to serve the Lord. We talk about this and I think we say it with maybe not thinking about it. What, what does it mean? It's God is our king. That each and every day I live to glorify him. He's the reason for my existence. And we're really going to serve something. We're going to serve someone. We're created to be worshipers. We're going to worship the gods of this world. We're going to worship ourselves. We're going to worship success. We will worship something. We will serve something. And what Joshua is saying is serve the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and serve him in truth. God wants honesty. He wants authenticity. He doesn't want us to fake it. He wants our service unto him to be sincere. And he can see it if it's fake anyway, can't he? And he also wants our service unto him to be in truth. Sometimes we want to define our own service unto God. And we say, I'm serving God, but in essence, we're doing something that's sinful and against his word. And I don't know if you've ever heard that, but a lot of times we want to justify our sinful behavior. So we don't want to own up to it that it's full on sin. And so we say, well, it's actually the Lord's will for him, for me to do this. I mean, by all means, God wants me to be happy. I don't know where you ever heard that. That's not in scripture. God wants us to be holy. Amen. There's nothing in there. That's called American Christianity. The Lord wants me to be happy. <laughs> no, the Lord wants you to serve him. And it's not always easy, right? 
And so we can kind of define our own worship and service to God, but true service to God is going to be inside of truth. It's going to be inside of what he's given us in the word of God. So he goes on in this challenge of serving the Lord in sincerity. And he says this, and I'm in the book of Judges, and that's not going to work. Like, where's verse 14? There it is. Therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In just a few more verses, Joshua's going to say, these gods are among you. This is not past tense. This is present tense. Idolatry is inside of the nation of Israel, even through these conquests, even through entering into the land. And Joshua is saying, look, you can't have it both ways. You can't serve God. You can't fear God and also serve all of these idols, all of these false gods. Sometimes I think we look at idolatry and go, that's such a primitive thing. We don't struggle with idolatry today. Oh, we absolutely do. Because the idols represented a philosophy, an ideology, a way of life. When they would worship these idols, many times it was tied to prosperity. It was tied to sexuality, sexual sin. And you look today, we bow down to the God of pleasure all the time. We bow down to the God of sexual immorality all the time. We bow down to the God of pride and self all of the time. And so these idols had these philosophies behind it. And the message is true for us today as well. If we're going to serve God, if we're going to fear him, we've got to allow the idols to be crushed and the idols to be destroyed. We recently studied 1 John together, and at the end of 1 John, John the Apostle says, Keep yourselves from idols, my dear little children. And at first, it doesn't seem to fit. Because you've got this letter that's all about love, and the last thing that John says is be really careful with idolatry. But it makes complete sense, because idolatry is the enemy to our love to God. Is there an idol that has come into our life? Something that's crept in that's more important to us than our relationship with the Lord. We need to put that idol aside and put God in his proper place. In verse 15, we see that we're to choose who we're going to serve. Who am I going to serve? And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Joshua acknowledges that we all have the ability to choose if we're going to serve God or not. Love demands a choice. If you're married and your spouse came to you with a 12-gauge shotgun and said, hey, marry me. It's like, that. what kind of relationship is that? That's no relationship. If that's how your relationship started, we do have free marriage counseling for you to come in to talk with one of the pastors, right? No, no marriage starts in that way. It's a choice. And it's with the Lord. He gives us choice. Even when he created Adam and Eve, he gave them choice. He put a tree there that they were not to eat of. Why did he do that? Because if there wasn't an opportunity to disobey, there's not an opportunity to obey. So we have the ability to choose. And if it seems evil, Joshua has a lot of courage here. He's not trying to talk anybody into serving the Lord. He's not putting the guilt trip on saying, hey, you better serve the Lord. He's actually like, if this doesn't seem like a good idea to you, then you don't have to do it. If it seems evil to you to serve this amazing good God, you don't have to, to serve him. And I wonder sometimes if we put that choice to people that way. And let me just kind of throw this out here this morning. If you don't like coming to church, don't come. 
You know, if you're here out of an obligation, maybe you can find better things to do on a Sunday morning. If you're only here because of your spouse or, or your kids and you don't have any intention of serving the Lord, God would say, hey, go for it. Here's all these other options for you. And I think a lot of times we're just doing everything possible to say, hey, look, you got to do this. You got to do this. And God's saying, hey, you know what? If you want to, there's a lot of other options that you could do. And I don't know about you, but I don't want church to be an obligation. Do you? This is a relationship where we get to be here. We get to worship God. We get to study his word together. And a huge thing changed in my life when I realized I'm not doing this for anyone else. I'm here to seek the Lord. And he presents this choice. And it's probably the most scary thing when it comes to us as parents with our kids. But they have a choice, don't they? There's no parenting that's going to override their free will. And at some point, they're going to choose if they're going to serve the Lord or not. And that's given to them and it's placed before them. If this isn't a good idea to you, if it seems evil to you, then here's your your choices. Also in this, it says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. He's speaking to the people of God. This isn't an issue of salvation. This is an issue of service. Every day we choose who we're going to serve. On Mondays, we may be serving ourselves. On Tuesday, we may choose to serve God. Jesus put it this way in Luke 9, verse 23. He says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. My sinful flesh is alive and well every single day. Me left to myself apart from Christ, I am going to be selfish. And the scripture's right in saying, I need to deny myself every day take up my cross and follow Jesus Christ. It's a daily choice of choosing who we're going to serve. The option for them in verse 15 is whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in which... Okay, I'm going to back up here. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell... But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So their choices of gods that they could go and serve were the gods that they just defeated or the gods of the Egyptians that their fathers served in the wilderness. And you've got to look at the record, the track record of these other gods. This Wednesday night, we're in John chapter 6, and many people leave following Christ. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you guys going to go too? And in essence, Jesus does the same thing as Joshua. He says, hey, if you guys don't want to follow me, hey, you can go. You're, you're free to go. You've got the hall pass. And Peter, Simon Peter, he said this, where else would we go? Because you alone have the words of life. Think about it. If we weren't serving the one true living God, we'd be serving the gods of this world. And they're defeated. And they don't bring life. And there's no value to them at all. And here's the challenge. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is declaring his choice. And this is the choice he's been making his whole life. For me, I'm serving the Lord. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. And men, it starts with us. It starts with the choice of us to make of saying, I'm going to serve the Lord. 
And I want us to understand this from a biblical perspective this morning, is that if you're a husband or you're a father, Scripture tells us that we are the head of the home. And that's not culturally correct, but it is biblically correct. In Ephesians chapter 5, it's very clear. God tells us that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And we've got to understand God giving roles inside a family isn't an issue of someone being superior. Husbands, fathers, you're not superior to your wife and to your kids. There's even an order inside of the Trinity. The son always submitted to the father, but they're complete equals. So don't get this idea that you're greater or better than your wife, but God has given you and given me a great responsibility of being the head of our homes. And so what this means is someday we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to be responsible for what took place in our marriage and responsible for what took place with our children. And so we first have to serve the Lord. Before we go to our families and say, hey, you need to serve the Lord, it's got to be true in our own lives. If we go to our kids and we say, hey, don't watch this, but we're watching something worse, it's never going to add up. If, if we go to our families and say, hey, you really need to pray, and we never pray, when we're really just going along with the things of Christ, maybe for our wife or maybe for our kids, it's not going to have the impact that the Lord desires and intends. And so here's the challenge for all of us men this morning is, are we serving the Lord? Can we honestly say, I'm serving God? It's not that we're perfect. It's not that it's going to be easy, but we're choosing, I'm going to serve the Lord. And as for my household, we're going to serve the Lord as well. And it's taking our families and saying, we're going to be the thermostat in our home. And you're saying, what do you mean? I'm the thermostat in my home? Exactly. With the responsibility that God's given us as fathers, as husbands, it's a thermostat. This thermostat sets the temperature, it sets the climate. If I come home all grumpy and grouchy from a day of work, guess what? That kind of sets the tone in the home. Everybody's like, dad's grumpy or grouchy. If I come home with the joy of the Lord and I'm ready to love on my family and share the love of Jesus Christ, that sets the tone for the whole entire family. Does that make sense? So our attitudes, our actions, our character, who we are as men, it sets the temperature in inside of our homes. So what does it mean? How do we lead our house in this way? How do we able to go home and make this stance? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Some of you wives may be really nervous right now and you're saying, I'm really scared of what kind of leadership my husband would take. Is it going to be authoritative? Is it going to be abusive? No, because this is what we're striving towards is Christ-like leadership, Jesus-style leadership. How did Jesus lead? He laid his life down first, and that's what we need to be doing as husbands and fathers, looking at the needs of our family and dying so that they can live, putting their needs before our own. And Jesus, he really did hold the line when it came to truth, didn't he? And he was firm in those things, but he also made great relational investments. And I call it the checkbook theory. If all you ever do, your checking account, is make withdrawals and no deposits, guess what? You're going to be in a lot of trouble. And with our families, men, if all we're ever doing is making withdrawals with no deposits, we're going to be in a lot of trouble with our families. Hey, come on. You need to do this. Hey, you need to do this. All right, we're going to have Bible study. And they're like, yeah, right, you can take your Bible study and go somewhere else, right? 
So there are those times where there's got to be withdrawals. Those are those times we're saying, no, there's a line in the sand. And as for me and my house, we're not going to do this. But it goes a lot better if there's consistent loving deposits that are happening every single day in the lives of our family. And here's a few ideas. Is one, guys, let's challenge each other before the Lord to be in prayer for our wives and kids. I'm going to say something that may be shocking, but I believe that if we're not in prayer for our wives and kids, we're actually in sin. And Samuel, he said this. It's the prophet Samuel. He says, if I cease to pray for you, it would be sin on my part. And if I cease to pray for my wife and my kids, it's sin on my part. God hasn't given this place of leading the family to anybody else. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not the state's responsibility. It's not your wife's responsibility, first and foremost. It's our responsibility as men. And there is a real battle that's happening for our marriages, a real battle that's happening in the hearts and lives of our kids. And we have to be in prayer for them. Start today and say, you know what? Every day I'm going to take even a few moments by name to pray for every single one of my kids, every single one of my grandkids to pray for my spouse. And bring God's word into your home. Where are they going to get God's word, honestly? I mean, as we look at our culture and our society, it's the home and church and maybe godly friends and godly grandparents. Those are the only places And for us as dads to be reading the word with our kids and also through conversation as we're in God's word for ourselves, as we're serving God first and God's words in our heart and as they begin to share their lives with us, we have the truth to say, well, this is what God's word has to say about this situation. Be in prayer, be in God's word with our families, but also I think a key part of this is time. It's time. It takes time. And not just the time of being in the word, the time being in prayer, but just the very simple fact of having time with our wives and with our kids. We can't lead in a Christ-like fashion if we don't have time with them. Jesus was always with the disciples. That's how he led them, is by being with them. I think we've been lied to that we can somehow survive in relationships just with quality time. If we have quality time with our wives and with our kids, then maybe we only need to see them 15 minutes a week. But it was quality. We had a quality 15 minutes together, and that's going to get us all through. And quality time is important, but also quantity of time makes a huge difference, doesn't it? We're just together. We may not be doing anything together, may even have some challenges as we're together, but we're together. And out of spending time together gives the opportunity to have relationship and to share the things of God. Men, I am with you in this journey. By no means do I have it all figured out or have I arrived. I don't think any of us have, but I can tell you this wholeheartedly. I am sick of seeing the enemy destroy our homes and I'm ready for our homes to be taken back for Jesus Christ. Aren't you? One out of every three children in America today have no relationship with their biological father. One out of every three. We are literally seeing children grow up in a fatherless society. And you can do the research for yourself, but how that affects kids is absolutely mind-blowing. And I want to give a challenge to all of us who are fathers. Be involved in the lives of your kids. God wants to reach the men of RMC. He wants to reach us. There's a work that he wants to do if we'll choose to serve the Lord. 
And maybe there has been a dissolving of a relationship with the mother of the child, but you fight to be involved in the life of that child. Do whatever it takes to make sure that you get time with them and you can call them on the phone and be a part of their life because it's needed. It's so needed in our time. It's so needed in our generation. And maybe you're saying, you know what? One of my children is growing up in a fatherless home. Please hear this, is that God is the God of the fatherless. And there's so much in scripture where he comes on behalf of the fatherless and he is there for them. And God will make up the difference and you be faithful, single moms, to serve the Lord. Joshua's making this statement. It definitely applies to fathers and husbands, but it also applies to every person, to wives, to moms, to singles, to teenagers of every age. If we'll stand and we'll say, but as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. And verse 16 So the people answered and said, Far it be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who has brought us out and our fathers up of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all of the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. They're quick to make a commitment. They say, we're in. We want to serve the Lord. In verse 19, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Man, I think Joshua's got the gift of encouragement, don't you? (laughs) Say, you guys can't do it. You can't serve the Lord. And if you're not serious about this, then the Lord's going to boot you right out of the land. Why is Joshua saying this? First, he wants them to realize they can't fulfill this commitment apart from God's strength. In and of ourselves, we can't do this. To follow the Lord the way that he intends, we need to be relying on his power, his might, and his spirit. And also, in verse 20, Joshua very intentionally doesn't want this to be a half-hearted, flippant decision. This isn't the kind of decision that Joshua's saying, okay, I want you to make this decision on Sunday and then have forsaken it by Friday. This is a lifelong commitment. In fact, it's a covenant that God is calling the children of Israel into. In verse 21, And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. It's almost like Joshua's trying to talk them out of it. They're like, No, we mean it. We really want to serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, You are witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Again, Joshua is addressing the idolatry. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Verse 26, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, the stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all of the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart each to his own inheritance. So here's the challenge. 
is choose to serve the Lord daily and make a lifelong commitment, make a covenant to God. And when we talk about covenants to God, there's something that's not flippant. They're to be taken seriously. And we must first look at the covenant in which God has made with us. It's the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. That salvation, grace, and favor comes through our lives, not through what we do, but what Christ has done upon the cross. So we're not making this commitment to God to try to earn salvation. We're responding to God's goodness, but we are deciding there's a direction of my life. I'm giving my life over to Christ. I'm serving him. I'm following him, not just today, but all of the days of my life. And that's what God is calling them to here in the book of Joshua. And Joshua says, here's a stone. This stone has heard your commitment. And when you see this stone, it's going to be a reminder that you've committed yourself to fear and to serve God. And have you made that commitment in your life where you've received Christ as your savior, you're in the new covenant, but because of God's goodness, you said, you know what, there's a course to my life. I'm not going to serve the gods of this world. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to put him first. I'm going to follow him. And as long as the Lord gives you breath, if you live to be 75, 85, 90, 110 like Joshua, there's no question, I'm going the direction of the Lord. And this commitment, this covenant that was made by this group, it did stick. Joshua's generation did serve the Lord as we finish the book of Joshua. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of the inheritance of Timnath-Serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaish. Joshua entered into his inheritance. He dies in the promised land. He's buried in the inheritance because he walked by faith. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all of the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. They fulfilled this covenant. It was their children that walked away from the Lord, but this generation was faithful unto the Lord. Verse 32, the bones of Joseph, which the Lord God of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. Joseph, when he died in Egypt, he said, when you guys go to the promised land, you make sure you dig up my bones. Kind of gross, right? He says, I want to be buried in the promised land. And Hebrews 11 says that Joseph had faith. He's put in the hall of faith because he's expressing to all of the children of Israel, Egypt's not your forever home. God is going to be faithful to give us the promised land. And we see the fulfillment of it. Now Joseph is buried in the promised land. In verse 33, And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So here's the question. Are we going to do it? Are we going to serve the Lord? As we leave this place this morning, are we impacted by the truth of Scripture? Saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to fear God. God has been so good to me. For fathers and husbands, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We don't exist as a family to be as comfortable as we can, 
to make as much money as possible. We're not just bowing down to good education. We all want our kids to have a good education. But even more so than that, we want our kids to know the wonderful works of God. We want them to fear God. We want them to serve God. And education is going to flow out of that. But we make that choice and we say, Lord, I want to serve you. I'm going to go for it. So this morning, as we often do, we're going to stand together. But let's stand together as a congregation and let's commit to the Lord together. I think one of the things that's happening is it's becoming countercultural to serve God, isn't it? And so we're going to need each other even more. We're going to need relationship with each other even more. And what a wonderful thing to be able to stand together with believers in the body of Christ and saying, we're committing to following Christ. And if there are idols that need to go, they need to go. In the book of Acts, we see that the hearts of the church was touched in such a radical way that they went home and got all of their books that didn't glorify God. Witchcraft and idolatry and pornography and all the things that were tied with those demonic activities. And they had a huge bonfire. And it wasn't good financially, all the money that was lost on those books, but they were touched and they immediately went out and responded. And does that need to take place today? Are there some idols that need to be torn down, some things that need to be broken? Take some sledgehammers to some stuff. Just burn it. Light it on fire. Go for it. People are going to start to wonder what in the world's happening. God's touching hearts and he's calling us to serve him and to destroy those idols. So let's stand and let's pray together.